This is a HeadGum Podcast. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. now what we own plants now you have plants huh yeah we have plants in our backyard we don't have any we don't have a yard we just have concrete but we are own they, plants now are they plants for looking at or plants for eating both <laughs> whoa nice <laughs> we have a pot with plants i couldn't identify in it it's like a mm-hmm. mix um we is have Laura, a- is, is your what is lord 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 on drugs no lord grown drugs in your backyard I mean, I don't know all you the plants. You can't identify the plants, so you don't know if she's growing drugs. I'm just saying I am, you need to take steps to protect yourself. We are going to take a trip to Colorado. <laughs> so oh, boy. Ooh. Got to get uh, on the vibes early. Welcome to Overdue. It's a podcast about the books you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name's Andrew. Um, this week, we're going to be talking about plant books. The Crimson Petal and the White by Michelle Faber. Oh, uh, hey, it's a theme. Um, but yeah, we have plants in our backyard now. I ate some basil that we bought that you yesterday. Yourself? Oh, well, that you bought. So does that count? <laughs> have you eaten basil out of your own garden or have you eaten basil that they grew at the Home Depot and we, then you brought it home? The latter. Okay. I mean, we great. didn't pick it at the Home Depot. We brought it home. We put it lovingly in a plastic box with dirt in it. And then mm-hmm. I made some sauce that had that basil in it today. Nice. Good. Yeah. It's a start. It is a start. Um we also got a a plant that apparently cats might eat, but also will ward off flies, which sounds mm. like that's not real, but this we'll see a, how it goes. Old lady who'd swallowed the fly situation. <laughs> you gotta get something that that'll ward off the cats. Yeah. But, and, and then you've got to get something that'll ward off the timber wolves oh, that no. you find into your yard. And the the signage on the plant was like, hey, every couple days, just like brush up against this plant so that it releases all of its juice to ward <laughs> off the flies <laughs> which okay man i'm glad you got this really good plant intro because my intro idea was um you know how you eat tacos and everything falls out of the other side and then you get free food you get extra food yeah tacos too when you eat the taco leavings. Was that your whole thing? That was thing? my intro idea. If, if we just sat like we do sometimes for five seconds without talking to each other, and it was clear that neither of us had anything, then I was going to do tacos. But you got you got plants, and I'm glad you did the plants. Thanks. Thanks for letting me talk about plants. We ate tacos for dinner. Were they tasty? Yeah, they were good. And then you had extra? And, well, because the bunch fall out of the other end. <laughs> what do you eat it with, a fork or a chip? Well, Susanna and I, my... my solution was one fork for both of us we just both can clear up our leavings as needed with the one and we only dirty one fork that's that's very uh astute and efficient of you and how nice for our how nice for our listeners they got two intros for the price of one. two intros so plants or tacos you choose the intro that you would like to accept as the canonical one for this episode of our podcast where every week one of us reads a book and tells the other one 
about it. As Craig mentioned earlier this week, he read Michel Faber's The Crimson Petal and the White. Yep. Which is a version of Charles Dickens where everybody has sex with each other all the time. It's a it's a horny but also <laughs> I mean Charles Dickens has some dirty like dirt stuff literal dirt stuff in it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um but it's like a dirty Dickens <laughs> He gave me the dirty (laughs) dick. Oh, no. Um, And we'll talk about how Faber, like, accomplishes that. I actually think it's one of the things I would recommend most about the book. I can also, like, think about some things where, like, this might not be up some folks' alley, but if Victorian era writing and storytelling is like a thing you're interested in anyway, I think the way that he makes it modern is, is pretty effective. And Um, also if you a little nasty. Yeah. If you're a little nasty, the crimson Mm -hmm. petal and the nasty. Um, This was a Patreon recommendation by Tanisha. Thank you, Tanisha. Thank you for your patience. Cause this book is 800 pages long. It's a big boy. We kind of, I've certainly kept avoiding it um, in our programming schedule. But I'm I'm glad I finally got around to it, even though I knew nothing about Michelle Faber coming in. Is he a man you know about, Andrew? Yeah, I didn't know nothing about him, but I looked <laughs> him up on the internet, and wouldn't you know it, there's stuff on there about him. <laughs> Do you want to hear it? I would love to. Okay. Michelle Faber was born in 1960, which is four years before my parents. Okay. Which helps me think of the age that people are. Do you are. do that? I do yeah, that. Yes. I do do that. Okay. Because my parents are pretty young for how old I am. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, my mom going to have a baby born... in like a couple weeks, and I think all the time about how the time they were <laughs> by the time they were twenty seven, my parents had three kids. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> my mom was thirty when she had me, and I was the third kid. So I turned thirty and had no kids, <laughs> didn't know how to feel. Um, she was also born the year after Einstein died, which I don't Ooh. know what that means. It's just post Einstein world. Yeah, yeah. It's just a thing I learned and mm-hmm. put in my brain forever michael faber born 1960 in the netherlands he moved to australia as a child and um, a lot of nations try to claim him and there have (laughs) been some (laughs) i think once somebody tried to convince him to become a uk citizen so he could like submit one of his books for a specific award yes only given to uk citizens but he didn't do it because at the time the uk was planning on following the u.s into iraq and he was a uh he was an objector to that huh. particular conflict. Okay. Um, but yeah, nations that claim him include Scotland, uh, where he's lived a lot, Aust- Australia, where he was sort of raised and, and completed most of his schooling, and the Netherlands, where he was born. Um, he was a nurse for like a decade and a half. It was a long time. But he's been writing for most of his you know, adulthood. Even though his first uh, published work was a collection of short stories, didn't come out till 1998. Okay, which is when he was 38. If you're doing the math, like I am, huh? So we got Andrew. Let's write novels. We yeah, got we time. could still. We still got tons of time. Don't even worry about it. Um, the initial draft for this book, in fact, was written in the 80s. You know, when he was in his 20s, and then he put it away for a lot of years. But it came out. You know, later, obviously. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> His first first novel was published in, in 2000, and Crimson in the White, which came out in 2002, is his fourth novel. So Whoa. He was very busy for a couple of years, and then he got less busy. Like, I think his most recent novel came out in 2014, and then there was another one in, like, the late 2000s. I think after uh, 2008, the, the Fire the book, Gospel. Yeah, The Book of Strange Things was published in 2014, 
It's about a British missionary who's sent to space. And <laughs> and afterwards, Faber... I laugh, but that's basically The Sparrow by yeah. Mary Doria Russell, which I talk about all the time on the show. So um, Faber said he would like retire from novels after that, which I guess you could just do. Because like, not too many people are like... They have to write novels. Yeah, I mean, like I don't know that know? I have one novel in me. I don't want to be like people watching me, waiting for me to do something else after I yes. put out my assuredly blockbusting <laughs> novel that I have in me. He has apparently written like short stories with some of the characters from Crimson Petal, though he is like. You can look at his other books and like at least two of them involve aliens. <laughs> I thought this was going to be like a fantasy novel. I literally knew nothing about it. It's got a in. very fantasy title. It's got either a fantasy title or a romance book title. Yeah. I was not kind of, I don't know what I was expecting, but I was not expecting it to be Dickensian. Dirty Dickens. Or, yeah. <laughs> um man, we got to keep saying Dirty Dickens for yep, sure. We really do. Um, what's the worst thing we can say and not have the explicit tag in iTunes? Because I think it might be Dirty Dickens. Yeah, it might be. There, <laughs> it, It's worth noting for folks um, who are going to go read this book, there's a lot of foul language. So, like, you know, depending on who you are recommending this book to, keep that in mind. Um, and there is, it is a book that involves, like, prostitution and um sex work and so some graphic stuff happens later in the book i don't know that we'll end up talking about the scene or not but there is non-consensual sex in the book um great so that happens it's i don't think we'll get too down and dirty but because for a long (laughs) period of time it is just a dirty dickens book though uh like you mentioned he he has written a couple of short stories with characters from this book in it but he vowed apparently never to write a sequel because he didn't want to become known as a guy who wrote modern dickens books like he didn't want that to become his thing and so he's and and i you know that's i don't know that i would have expected somebody to write two 800 page dickensian (laughs) novels but i just respect the desire to set expectations up front Yes. Um, and then the last thing, because I, I, I want to keep it light on author stuff, because I know we're going to talk about a very long book after this, but mm-hmm. um, this book was adapted in 2011 into a four-part BBC miniseries featuring uh-huh. Chris O'Dowd and Gillian Anderson. Whoa. Gillian Anderson. Okay. Sure. Uh-huh. X-Files. Do you know what is Gillian or Gillian? Do you know? I think it's Gillian because that's my sister's name and I was always confused as to why they're not the spelled the same Got way. it. Got it. Got it. Yeah. Gillian Anderson yep. of the X-Files and also of the more recent X-Files revival. That's. I'm glad that you noted that. <laughs> Did you get that from the Wikipedia page? Because I also noted in the in the other media section of the Wikipedia page for this book. Um, after it talks about that adaptation, there's just a line with no citation and no further context that just says, Emily Gilmore reads it for her book club and recommends it to Lorelai on the day of her mother-in-law's funeral. (laughs) Spoiler alert for whatever show that's from. Well, it's from Gilmore Girls, obviously, but... Uh, I mean, if (laughs) if if you weren't familiar with that show, would you get it? No. I love I love I can't say I remember that scene having watched yeah I just I love knowing when I'm reading Wikipedia that what I'm reading is a snapshot in time and sometimes there are sentences that I I read them and I know as soon as anyone pays attention that sentence is donezo it's out of here yep Uh uh-huh 
Whoever's editing Wikipedia, don't take this out. It's a gem. Leave it in. Um, Jimmy Wales, if you're listening. <laughs> uh, so I'm good on author stuff if you are. Yeah, let's take a You want to take a, take a break and then come back? Sounds good to me. All right. Hey, you want to tell me about teeth? Andrew, I'm trapped in Victorian England, and I've never heard of a toothbrush. And my <laughs> teeth are super nasty because I don't have any oranges. Do you have a sponsor that can help? Lucky for you, I have both a time machine to bring you into now times, and I have a sponsor to tell you about. It's Quip. You know them. You love them. They're those guys who make the toothbrushes. Uh, just two minutes twice a day can help pave the way to a healthier mouth and mind. It apparently brushes your mind now. <laughs> Quip works by using sensitive sonic vibrations for an effective clean that's gentle on your sensitive gums because people brush too hard and some electric toothbrushes are too abrasive. There's a built-in two-minute timer that pulses every 30 seconds to remind you when to switch sides and help you clean your whole mouth evenly. And brush heads are automatically delivered on a dentist-recommended schedule every three months for just five bucks. A friendly reminder when it's time for a refresh and to stay committed to your oral health because 75% of us which seems low, honestly, use old, worn-out bristles that are ineffective. That's true. Brushing your mouth and your mind. I live in the 1870s, and I'm just shoving wires in there, hoping for the best. <laughs> I love Quip because periodically I just get this silver bag in the mail with a bunch of toothpaste and a new brush head in it, and it's just like, my mouth's going to feel great later. It's going to huh. be really sick because they recommend that you clean, you know, the gunk off the inside of the toothbrush with the old brush head. Like it's one last act of service before oh, you throw it in the trash. Oh, that's really smart. And it's so nice. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so that's why I love Quip and why over one million happy, healthy mouths do too. Quip starts at just $25. And if you go to getquip.com slash overdue right now, you get your first refill pack for free. That's your first refill pack free, a $5 value at G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash overdue. Quip, clean out your mouth, clean out your mind. <laughs> Craig, now I got this good toothbrush to clean all the smut out of my mind after we talk about this book. So tell me about the Dirty Dickens and then I'm just going to go <laughs> scrub it clean after this. Okay. The first thing to tell you about The Crimson Petal and the White is actually the narrator is a, is a weird duck. The narrator... Um, <laughs> well, that's an interesting creative not, choice. <laughs> not literally a weird duck. Here okay. is the... Let me just read you the first paragraph of the book. Sure. Um, tell, I just want you to tell me what this reminds you of, and we'll see if we're on the same wavelength. Okay. Watch your step. Keep your wits about you. You will need them. The city I am bringing you to is vast and intricate, and you have not been here before. You may imagine from other stories you've read that you know it well, but those stories flattered you, welcoming you as a friend, treating you as if you belonged. The truth is, you are an alien from another time and place altogether. This does sound like the warning before the beginning of a Choose Your Own Adventure <laughs> it does, book. Right? <laughs> It's a little bit choose your own adventure, and then it be it morphs into like a uh, dungeon master tone, where you can a little bit. Anytime something's in the second person, you yes. do get a very strong like. Oh, you have encountered a goblin in the corner. Is a treasure chest? What do you do? Correct. And the book he Faber like 
he'll drop out of this mode for for stretches. It's not the entire book is like it's not relentless second person. Once you start meeting characters, um, he'll actually just kind of leave you with them for a period of time. But he'll always interject every once in a while, and especially in the first like fifth of the book, this type of like. I am the narrator. I am talking to you. I am going to move your direction, like move your eyes over to this person and like direct your experience of this world. Uh, That's like ever present. And it does, it gives you, he constantly refers to you as like a traveler from somewhere else. Um, And it's not literal. It just is what it is. I don't really know how to explain it. Sure. Yeah. Um, As I was reading, reviews of the book i read one in the guardian and one in the new york times like it is clear that the book is very aware of books and of fiction like a lot of the characters in it are are writers of of some sort so this sounds kind of like table setting telling you to know that the book knows you're there Uh (laughs) uh-huh and just watch out buddy well and it does the thing that in like in cinema you can accomplish this by like copying a classic shot or maybe not copying but like aping a style or something like that to be like oh I made a movie in 2018 but it's set in the 70s so like I used old film stock and it's all it all looks that way like this is a way to kind of nod to you know late 19th century British fiction but also be aware and tell the reader that Faber knows you've read Dickens or knows you've read Bronte or whatever it might be that like, this is going to be a little different. It's going to be a little dirtier and it's going to be muckier and like, get ready. Mm -hmm. Um, It also like later in the book allows him to kind of hand wave and montage pretty easily uh, in a very conversational tone. Like it does it, gives him the power to either have a really cool turn of phrase or just be like, hey, dude, like, uh, I'm telling you about a boring person. Pay attention and, like, (laughs) let's go over here. That, there's a thin line when you're writing in that style and some of it is, is like, this is making the book fun and and light and breezier to read. And some of it's like, okay, buddy, just, like, tone it down. (laughs) I know you're writing a book. You know you're writing a book. Like, you don't have to try this hard. Which which side of that does Faber fall on more often? More often on the former because he starts to get out of the way as the book goes on. Like, you will occasionally get one line within, like, five to ten pages where he has dropped the word you, like, referring to the reader, if that. Um, but it more just it allows him to be less formal in how he does his close third person, I think. Okay. Because it's just it's a storyteller who is talking to you directly. So like any of his interjections feel very relatable um, and take some of the dust off the time period. It isn't um, there's another book I'm thinking of, The Book Thief, which we've read for the show. I think the narrator in that book is supposed to literally be death, like, talking to the reader. Mm-hmm. And it is similarly playful, but also does a good job of, like, hey, I'm going gi- to leave you with this character for a period of time, and then I'm just going to, like, remind you that I'm here. Because remember, you're holding a giant book, and, like, <laughs> you can't escape that fact. Sure. Um, so it opens with, hit- with the narrator um, taking us through kind of this like slummy corner of London where all the prostitutes are um, and introduces us first to a woman named Carolyn 
Um, the narrator says, she's a sweet soul. You'll like her. And if you don't, it hardly matters. As she soon set you on the right path, you can abandon her without fuss. Um, and over every time he introduces a new character, you get this little like, well, this person's going to be important, but not as important as this next person. Sometimes I do want a book to tell me that, though, especially yes. if I'm reading a book that actually is from this time period. Yes. And it's we kinda... talked about this with um, with. Oh, man. What was it? Oh, Middlemarch. Yeah. With Middlemarch is. Yeah. Sometimes I just want to know, OK, how like. How engaged should I be? Because I'm I'm giving you all I've got right now, but if you need me to 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 kind of sit up and wake up and pay more attention, just let me know and I can I can <laughs> I can do it for you. Yeah. I I will say um we were messaging off air about like the type of book it was and how big of a book it was, and like it did take me a while to turn this engine over. Like it it <laughs> it took me a while to like just say I'm reading this book and here we go because I could I didn't know what it was going to do I couldn't really tell what the style was right away and I was like too I guess I was just intimidated by it because it's a sure yeah it's a big thing and it's a big period thing um and every, and, every once in a while, I, I wish I could go back. Like once my brain is in the mode it needs to be in, once I yes. figured it out, I do kind of want to go back and read the whole thing again so I understand. But usually I don't have time. So, yeah, that can be tough. I'm gonna pay someone to read this for me and tell me what it's like. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't have the time. I mean, yeah, a lot of our audience is doing that. <laughs> so. Um, so we're, we're introduced to Carolyn who gives us, and again, like the narrator tells us she is important enough to know, but she's not a main character. She comes up later in the story, um, to set the scene of like the first thing we see her doing is like literally plunging out her insides after having had sex with a guy to like, as a form of birth control. Plunging out? Yeah. She's got like a makeshift plunger and some, uh some medicine or something oh, okay she's just, okay she's washing out the man that she was just having relations with got, for it, money. got it got it got it got it got it um and we spend some time with her and her hard life you you get a setup of the tension between like it she had a, a husband and a child who died and it's either like work in prostitution where she can like sleep in in the morning and yes she's supposedly a fallen woman based on society's values but like she doesn't have to work her hands to the bone in a factory none of which of that is safe and she'll like go blind with low light you know within 10 years um it's similar stuff that like hugo explores in les mis um that this is a like cusp of the the industrial age kind of thing so there's a lot of uh we're you know we're getting ready for the 20th century and people are figuring out where they're going to fall, like coming out of, you know, older sets of values and stuff sure, like that. Sure, sure, sure. Um, we also meet Sugar, who is one of our main characters. She is another prostitute who is 19. Well, with a name like Sugar. Yes. I, I don't, don't know what else you would be in, we, a, in, a, in a work of fiction. <laughs> uh, she works in the house that her mom, Mrs. Castaway, runs. Uh, she's an older lady. We don't really know... We get like snippets of their backstory and mostly that Mrs. Castaway was very abusive to Sugar in in ways both big and small. Um, and I don't really think we know what Sugar's like given name was. Um, oh, so Sugar is is a, a nom did prostitution? I believe so, yeah. Okay. Um, 
and she is <clears throat> she quickly emerges as like a a more main character we're going to spend more time with her she uh is you know she likes to read and it's not just that she can read it's that she likes to which like sets her apart from people sure um she is listed in some sort of like prostitute catalog pamphlet that's circulating um london called more sprees in london hints for men about town uh i don't know if this is a real document i did see like a note in some faber article where some of his research for this book included like previously censored articles and things from victorian england yeah because i i guess it would be it would be hard to do research on that sort of thing if it was the official position of the press or the government or whatever that that did not exist yes correct um so she is listed in this pamphlet um that later finds its way into the hands of mr william rackham and mr william rackham when we first meet him this is one of the good ones where like he is introduced by Sugar seeing him on the street, and uh, she's like, oh, he's kind of dumb looking, and he's like, <laughs> his hair is bad, and he's going to buy a new hat, and this uh, this is one of the things we get. But William Rackham is destined to be the head of Rackham Perfumeries. Head of Rackham Perfumeries. If you want to get on, you can't afford to linger in the company of whores. You must find it in you to become extraordinarily interested in why William Rackham considers himself to be in desperate need of a new hat. I will help you as much as I can. <laughs> um, and like a few pages later, it's telling you about what Rackham thinks about how we should reorder wealth in society uh and it like literally does a line break and says hey hey hey, are you still paying attention <laughs> um and so he is the second son of his family his older brother henry was supposed to take over the family perfume business um but henry is like become very religious and may end up being an anglican priest uh, he's not sure. He has his doubts about whether or not he can handle it. So William is supposed to take over the family business. He fashions himself a writer, uh, but he's a little frustrated and unsuccessful. So he's kind of just living on an allowance from daddy, but daddy wants to stop running the business because he's old. Mm-hmm. Um, so William is out on the town after buying a crappy new hat and... <laughs> He, this is the first time you've indicated the quality of the hat that he is out buying. It's like it's Is it crappy because he has bad taste or is it crappy yes, because he has not enough money? It's okay. a taste issue. Um and he instead of going home with his servant who was buying things for his reclusive slack slash sick wife, uh Agnes, he goes out on a town looking for a prostitute and he runs into his buddies uh Bodley and Ashwell who are good old Cambridge boys. My favorite buddy cop. <laughs> you know how Franklin and Bash got canceled and they brought back these two yeah. these two jokers. They're basically what if what if you had friends with Barney from How I Met Your Mother twice? What if you had two Barneys in two your life? Two Barneys? Yes. Um they're they like you know publish small runs of books that are meant to be offensive. And all they're doing is running around town sleeping with whores. Um, and they're, they, you know, their main purpose in the novel 
I think, and it's it's well done because like in the scope of the novel, they can have like a kind of small but very particular lane that they exist in, which is to show up and egg William on to something that gets him into trouble. Like, they are just two rakish guys, two party boys. <laughs> two wild and crazy guys. Who always show up at the wrong time, and then, like, you know, they're the ones who are like, William, do you have the latest edition of more sprees from London? You know, you need to go out and get, you know, into some dirty dickens. If so you know it sounds like I mean. they they serve as a comic relief, more or less. Um, Yeah, they say some offensive stuff about ladies and that is Faber kind of letting you know the value system of the world you're in but also yeah they're kind of kooky um I don't know that I found them like great cut ups or anything I mean listen this is this is what happens a lot of the time when people think they're funny <laughs> yes I do think that they are they are definitely characters who think they are funny and there's pages devoted to that so that's actually Same. a good well um and they tell him about this catalog, um, and it's kind of made clear through one or two uh, young prostitutes that uh, William finds himself with but is unsatisfied with that, like, the bulk of the women in this world, uh, in this book, are not there by any sort of choice. They are not doing sex work by choice. For the most part, they are doing it for lack of other options. Some of them are forced into it, like... They their family died and then they were taken in by someone who runs a brothel and the rest is history kind of thing um, or it's economic. And as I was saying earlier with Carolyn, like her husband passed away. She was trying to do like menial labor with her son and her son died and then she couldn't afford to do anything else. Um, Sugar hasn't known anything else because she was raised by her mom to go into prostitution. Um, Thanks. And William has a particular thing he wants to do. It's unclear exactly what he wants these women to do for or to him, um, but they refuse. And they say, well, you should go look up Sugar because she'll do anything. Uh, and it says so in her listing in, in the pamphlet that she is an eager devotee of every known pleasure. Uh, the pamphlet also says that she does not have a conventionally attractive body, that it is almost too angular for the fashion, uh, which reminded me of early episodes of Fleabag, actually, Andrew, that I just mm-hmm. started watching to make you proud of me. Oh, well, look at you. Yeah. Look at you watching some TV. Watching some TV. Good job, um, Chernobyl and Fleabag. I you could be current on TV for like three weeks with this. <laughs> I know. I'm too busy reading giant dirty dickens books um he does find her it becomes an obsession for william to find this woman named sugar he does find her in a bar and part of her deal is that because she is a reader and keeps up with the news and things that are like fashionable that she can actually she can also like talk with men about what they're interested in which she has also found to be a good like diffusing technique for anyone who might get kind of unruly so sure yeah and and i'm sure if you are if you're in a position if you're trying to like build up a a clientele or something it it is good to be able to distinguish yourself yes in the quiz because the sex happens but there's before and after also (laughs) yes and she uses it to like make men feel very good about themselves Yeah, yeah yeah um and so 
there's pages of him being like, oh my God, I was, before I talked to Sugar, I was dead. This is amazing. I haven't been alive like this in ages. And he God. hasn't even had sex with her yet. He's just talking to her at a bar. This is like guys who are like, oh, you're, I can't, do you, you played video games? That's so cool. I, it is kind cool. of like that. It's like she's dropping, she I feel loves, like I can really talk to you. Like you're one of the guys. <laughs> yes. She loves Jonathan Swift and he's like, Swift's my favorite. And you're like, oh my God. Mm. So it's, it's, and it's played that way. It is played to make you like, William, come on. I, I don't, I don't, you know, it's not a thing where Faber is like endorsing it. It just is what it is. Um, you're embarrassing all of us, but so he goes back and he spends the night with her. He falls asleep before they engage in any activity, um, though he does wake up and he has peed the bed, uh, which she takes care of. And then they have, have sex. We all have accidents sometimes. Yeah. Um, yes. I guess. Uh, and then. After they have sex and he goes back to his world, um, he is obsessed with her. And he has now decided that no one else can have her and that he needs her in his life to, like, complete his life. Keep in mind, he is married. We later find out that he has a, like, five-year-old kid. Um, but now he can be a complete man because he can have sugar in his life. Oh, good. Good for you know. him. I feel um, really good about this. It's going to be pretty good. We also, in that little interlude, I will spend less time on the, on the second half of the book, but I really want to set up who all the characters are. Um, in that interlude where he falls asleep, we get a little nod to Sugar as an author and as a writer. She has been working on a novel like in her spare time that has like 15 different names, most of which she has crossed out but is basically a like revenge against men novel um, that is largely a violent revenge story uh, that is her using fiction to respond to like things she reads in pamphlets where dudes write, no woman can be a serious thinker without injury to her function as the conceiver and mother of children. You're like, oh, neat. Jinkies. Woof. <laughs> Yikes. And like this stuff, uh, later in the book, the, the opposite side of this is like, multiple women in the book explore different forms of work so you have you know you have the sex workers and sugar's type of work changes over the course of the book you have agnes uh william's wife uh, who is sick all the time and a recluse and is a mother but we'll get into why she does not engage in mothering um we meet lots of servants we meet um the love interest of william's brother mrs fox who does like charity work in what is called fantastic mrs fox the fantastic mrs fox who engages in what is called the rescue society whose whole goal they're a bunch of religious ladies who go into like the brothel neck of the woods and uh like try to rescue women fallen women and like get them jobs in factories or something (laughs) um and so there's a lot in the in the second half of the book, and they're they're also talking to the young Sophie, who is William's daughter, about like what women can be in this new era, um, now that like different types of work are available to people in general. Um, we have diff- so many different classes to choose from. You could be a shopkeeper, you could work in whatever. Um, that like the flip side of that is this kind of anxiety of like what women should be versus what they could be. 
uh-huh. um, that plays out through the through the whole book. So anyway, William has decided that he is actually going to accept his family destiny of being a captain of industry because that is the only way he can afford to have sugar all to himself. It's a good motivation if I have ever heard one. Mm-hmm. Um, so he purchases literally purchases sugar outright from her mother slash madam um, and installs her in like a house that he bought in Notting Hill um, and like makes her live there essentially. It's like you're no longer a prostitute. You just live in this house and I can come by and we can have sex and talk or whatever. Uh You know. That's you know, things that you do when you own a person. When you own a person? And he doesn't... <sighs> legally, I mean, does... He doesn't legally own Listen, her, but right? it sounds like that's definitely the expectation, right? Like you buy somebody out of a certain kind of life so that you can free them up to be whatever you need them to be. Like that definitely does not sound like... Yeah, there's some pretty woman like that's stuff what he going, thinks on. Is going yeah. on. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and so the second section of the book is her living in this house installed as his mistress and she simultaneously like resents and wants him like she does as we get access to her perspective she does like really dislike how trapped she is she dislikes she dislikes upper class fanciness and things like that but she does see this as a way to a better life mm-hmm. um he is also literally like having money left for her every day, so much money that she can't even spend it to the point where like she doesn't do any laundry, she just buys new sheets. We've you and I have talked <laughs> uh-huh. several times about how we would never wear a pair of socks twice if it's we were true. rich. That would be the one like rich guy affectation that it's, I would willingly is, take on, yeah. Is that a rich guy affectation or just a thing we would do? I don't know any like Wall Street fat cats who are like have been written up in Forbes for throwing away socks. They wouldn't. They wouldn't want anyone to know about it. You just like quietly do it because you can. Oh, that's, that's my. That's a that's power play. Thought. That's a real yeah. power play. Okay, mm-hmm. sorry. I don't think like a rich guy, so I don't really know how it would go. Um, but I'm glad that you're here to show me the way. Well, this is also like a a lifelong middle class person's idea of what rich people <laughs> must be like. True. very true um so she is having trouble in this new situation because she is she can't like find herself back into writing now that she is removed from that way of life explicitly she like kind of lacks the fiery anger that was driving her to write in the first place she also like at one point isn't sure if she should be writing about people in that situation anymore because she isn't uh, and the book like explicitly has her voice that catch twenty two of like being a writer of means, but writing about like folks who are you know struggling or marginalized or or whatever it might be. Um, which that again, like that's the thing where Faber gets away with tossing like a modern question into a book that is otherwise like a nineteenth century story. Sure. Um, William is becoming a successful titan of the perfume industry, um, though he does, which I think it's cool that it's a perfume industry for a bunch of reasons, the chief of which is that it's like it gets at both ends of a male power dynamic thing where like 
men running and, and helping to create an industry like explicitly marketed to women's fashions and like controlling them in a way, mm-hmm. but then also being reliant on their newfound spending power and influence. Uh, there's a part later in the book where he's wondering if he's going to have any lasting impact on the world. And he goes in someone's bathroom and sees all sorts of soaps from another brand. And he just starts crying. Oh no! (laughs) (laughs) And he's like, Oh, I did all this work and I don't have a son. Nobody even uses my good, good soap. Nobody uses my smells. Yeah. William's a mess. Um, And so he is like relying on sugar there's she's kind of doing a um it's a mix of like a it's not quite Cyrano de Bergerac it's sort of like when Elaine is is working for Jay Peterman like all of the copy for his products are bad mm-hmm. and she is like helping him do better and like make the products appeal to actual people I'm really glad we could get like it's surely the most relatable entry point into this <laughs> for most people is gonna be a Seinfeld reference hey just you know where i am yeah it's not it's my honest perspective on the book andrew that's what people come here for that's yeah sure um and she recognizes this as like power over him and the other like primary narrative arc in the middle of the book is her like trying to learn as much as she can about him trying to learn about what his loves and fears and desires are so that she can be indispensable to him because she doesn't want to go backwards and doesn't want to go down in her station. And so it gets at this thing that is like, is she in love with him? It doesn't matter. Like, does it doesn't, it doesn't sound like it, though. No, but she does care for him. And over the course of the book, she gets jealous of other people spending time with him. And she does, like, yearn to be with him. But it is all very transactional. Um, and she's aware of it being very transactional. Um because that's that's like her perspective and her worldview. Um, there is a part where she she, is, she has been in a in a position where her relationships are mostly literally transactional, yeah, and commoditized. So, yeah, and, and even though she's out of that, it must be hard to switch that part of your brain off. Yes, yes. And so I think even as the reader, I was going back and forth on trying to figure out where she was vis-a-vis William. Like I think. There's enough evidence in both directions of of being very cynical about it, but also being like, yeah, you could also then still develop feelings for that person. And at the end of the day, like what makes you happy and what makes you sad are like wrapped up in all sorts of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, she does start to like doubt her assumptions about upper class life as she tails uh, William and his wife Agnes to like public events and stuff. She goes to a concert for the very first time and like sees live music uh, and sees men performing music just for the sake of music and says, can that really be men together and no evil? Because <laughs> she just doesn't seeing men just committed to a like pure act of like creation and goodness is not a thing she's exposed to. Um, but it also like does some good class stuff of like her never having been to like an artistic endeavor before or, or things like that. Um, that I think is just kind of really, really interesting. And yet mm. William's experience is one of the first things he goes to is to see the great Flatelli, the sensation of sensations, the magician of emissions, a one man wind ensemble. Yes. His act oh. is playing songs by farting out of his no. butt. 
no. I knew where it was going, and I didn't want it to go there, and that didn't change where it was going. And he's, like, unimpressed with the flatulist at one point. He's like, yeah, it's green sleeves, I guess. I could I could do that. <laughs> God, just... if, I want, if I wanted to hear this, I could stay home. <laughs> Yikes! It's it's just good like send ups of culture from and or endorsements of of capital C culture from like different viewpoints. Um, the other arc that I've I'm really gonna undersell in this episode of our show, but I think is like some readers will actually be kind of really interested in, which is um, William's brother Henry again the the religious almost parson guy and his love interest Mrs. Fox, who is a young widow who is similarly. Um, kind of evangelizing Angli- the Anglican Church and running this rescue society. She starts to get tuberculosis, or what what people think is tuberculosis. They have the hots for each other, but they don't want to admit it for religious reasons, and it like causes a lot of consternation. Where ultimately, uh, they do hook up. And then we do a time jump. She has survived whatever she had, and he died in a fire. And you are led to believe that maybe that fire was not accidental. Hmm. It's a real reversal of fortunes. Yes. Interesting. Um, And that comes after some protracted experiences where he has, like, gone into the slums trying to, like, be a holy man and help people and really can't deal with, like, the reality of poverty and the reality of, like, what people do to survive down there. Sure, yeah. Um, Which that also feels painfully modern in in how it's depicted. Um, All of that spurs on a big change in William and Sugar's relationship where... uh, he is like feeling like he's losing his grasp on the world around him. His wife, Agnes, who I've also not talked about enough, um, is kind of going crazy and like to like actually like diagnosed multiple times throughout the book. The doctor is like, we should, I don't know what's up with her. Should we put her in an asylum and hopefully she gets better? She clearly is not well. Um, she, at an early age, had her period, and none of it was ever explained to her. Okay. So that she thinks it's, like, the result of demons or something. Sounds Um, tough. Yeah. She thinks a demon comes, like, every month and, like, messes with her body. Um, And then when she ends up having a kid, after she gets married to William, she doesn't think that that's what's happening to her. Because mm-hmm. she was never told how that works. Um, and so when William installs Sugar as his new governess for his daughter so that he can keep Sugar in his life, which is like, you see it coming like a chapter ahead of time and it feels like a great escalation in the relationship. Um, you learn that they're not allowed to let Agnes see her daughter because Agnes doesn't think she has one. Okay, so that's a couple questions about how that could. <laughs> listen, listen. I know I I feel like I am bringing this up a lot. My wife is super pregnant. Yep, and I don't 
know how anyone could be in the position that Susanna is in and not know exactly what is going on. Yeah. I mean, I know the brain is very good at protecting you from stuff that you don't want to acknowledge, but man, it just like, yup. There's, there are some warning signs. Let's say that. (laughs) Yeah. It's kind of, you don't get the full skinny on that on how that works until later because um, it takes until Sugar is in the house working as the new governess under, like, an assumed identity. They they still call her Miss Sugar, but, like, no one except William knows where she's from. Mm -hmm. Um, And Agnes has, like, buried her diaries in the garden for some reason because she's trying to start a new life. She's trying to turn over a new page. And then she starts to have, like episodes where she is out in the garden in the middle of the night looking for them well they're gone because sugar found them mm-hmm. and sugar has been reading them again she is trying to learn as much as she can about william so that she can like remain in his life and like continue to benefit from being in this rich man's sphere so that yeah, she does not you- have to go backwards <sighs> right you only um, bury stuff instead of burning stuff if you want someone to secretly find it. Yes, yes. There's, like, some, there's a really there's a really easy way to dispose of paper that we've known about for a very long time. <laughs> and people do use that in this story, but not Agnes because she has issues. Um, and in the diary, you get like you get the backstory on how she was never taught about what her period is. You get the. Uh, the grief from her mother dying when she was young after remarrying to a dude that she doesn't really like, um, which also forced her to change from going to a Catholic church to going to the Anglican church and feeling like her faith has been taken from her. Um, So all of this gets kind of wrapped up in her brain in her view of angels and demons. And the story of when she is pregnant is like, she thinks that people are feeding her when she's asleep so that she is like gaining weight. And then there's like a demon inside of her, of course. Uh-huh. Um, and then over the, even earlier in the book, she has these like visions or dreams where she's on a train to some fancy hospital or something. That's when she had the baby and she just has like kind of logged that somewhere else in her brain sure okay um and so william has again like exerted his will to keep this reality for her the servants i guess maintain the fiction also sugar is not comfortable with this situation at all because she is growing to really like the the kid sophie and like teaching her and wanting her to be a good person and a and a a meaningful member of society Uh and she's like this is all bad for everyone um the William wants an heir. He realizes that he might need a boy. Um, and that's where some of the, the worst stuff in the book happens with Agnes, where he is taking advantage of her while she is recovering from an injury. Ugh, yikes. Yep. Um, meanwhile, Sugar's pregnant because she's still having sex with William. Mm-hmm. And she stopped doing her routines from being a prostitute when she got you know, bought and removed from that situation. And so she's like, well, maybe I could give him an air, I guess, but nope. Uh, And so like the back quarter of the book involves both women um, attempting various escapes from William and William kind of getting left behind uh, in the life, the kind of crumbling life that he's 
built for himself. Sure. Um, it's a cool book, but there's a <laughs> lot going on, and we there's no way we we could talk about all of it. Um, well, without no, being yeah. here for literal days. Um, but I think like Sugar and Agnes, I guess if you you know the the Crimson Pell and the White is co- comes from a, a poem by Lord Alfred Tennyson that I don't know it's some, it's a reference, and I don't really get the reference because I don't understand the poem, but it's there. <laughs> Poems um, are hard. That's why we don't read poems for the shows because they're pretty hard. It's pretty hard. You guys at home ever read a poem? It's really hard. <laughs> and, but I do think that there's it. The visually, it is alluding to like issues of purity, um, or sullen. You know, things being sullied, um, and whether whether or not that is a true dichotomy. Um, Agnes certainly experiences the world as like various stages of clean or or really fallen and dirty in herself and Sugar is way more realistic and like I just gotta live I just gotta keep climbing that ladder um, but they are on their own kind of parallel tracks I think Sugar is technically younger than Agnes but recognizes that because Agnes was like basically raised to get married super early as this like beautiful Victorian ideal girl um, that she, she mental issue, mental illness issues aside, she was always destined to basically be a porcelain child the rest of her life mm-hmm. um, and not really learn about the way things are. And sugar is like the street wise, like I fought my way to get here. Um, and, and she is discovering things like motherhood. She is discovering things like caring for a child um, and building a life with another person, which is not a thing that she had dreamed of. The book mm-hmm. that the book that she had dreamed of writing was about basically tearing everything down, and she never gets to finish that book. Um, is there anything in some of the reviews that I that I either haven't hit or that you're like, oh, I did hit that? I'll just I'll read the first paragraph of the Guardian review because I just want you to tell me more about like I said because we talk about the Dirty Dickens, right? But yeah curious to hear more about how the format i guess has been updated um michelle faber has produced the novel that dickens might have written had he been allowed to speak freely all the familiar tropes of high victorian fiction are here the mad wife the cut above prostitute the almost artist the opaque governess but they are presented to us by a narrator with the mind and mouth of the 21st century where once the victorian novel was lace-like with decorous gaps and tactful silences now it is packed hard with crude fact and dirty detail and that so that does Mostly put the focus on the the sex things. Yep. But especially with the like the the meta intro that you mm-hmm. gave mm-hmm. there at the beginning, I'm wondering if there are any other ways where I don't know where where it breaks the fourth wall in some way that you found interesting, or or where it updated some trope or played on some trope in a way that only a modern reader would appreciate. Like only '90s kids would get it. <laughs> Um, I think two things that I can point to that aren't explicitly actually okay. I got three options for you. Let's we're Dang, gonna, we're gonna right. do all three. Wait, we'll, if I just let you, if I keep you talking for long enough, will you come up with more? Um, probably. <laughs> like it's a long okay. book. <laughs> all right, great. <laughs> um, there is a section where um, William is like asking for her advice on. Uh, how to deal with some clients 
and she is like assuring him what he should say and how she should go about it. It's because she knows kind of how to deal with people and, and how to communicate in ways that they understand. And the scene ends with like them in his office and she is like fondling his crotch. And it is like just very literal as both a like a thing that they do because they are sexual beings uh, who have desires for each other, but also like, She's pulling the strings because she literally has her hand down his pants while she's telling him what to do. That's the main Um, string. Yes. So that is like... If you will. That that should... Oh, there's... mm, There's a scene where this is this wasn't on my list of options andrew this is some content so i did find a fourth option yeah so if if kids are listening think about this one um there's a scene where he asks her to like tell him a secret about herself that no one else knows and she thinks like oh i could talk about being raised by my mom who is also running a a brothel i could tell all this stuff instead i'm gonna tell him about how i can shoot water out of myself and then proceeds to do the trick, like crab walking around the room, and he and they just like giggle a lot, and it's very silly, and that is not in a Dickens novel. Is that peeing? It's not peeing. No, she like uses a glass of water, and then you know fills up the super soaker, as it were. You've got to admire the sort of muscular uh-huh. fortitude. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> that that sort of thing requires. And, and it's funny because that scene gets played like super for laughs and it's irreverent and and weird kind of like that it just kind of pops out of nowhere. And then later, well, so whoa, and then like later, I don't remember which character, but one of them kind of bemoans the state of their relationship when they, you know, when she becomes the governess, their, their relationship takes a real turn and becomes very formal and things and they kind of drift apart. And one of them is like, not quite reminiscing, but like, is that the person I knew? The person that I did the sex trick with, with the water? <laughs> like, so so Faber gets away with both telling you stuff that was probably happening, but was like, you know, no one in, would in good conscience put it down in paper in the 19th century, but also like finds a way to link it to the dramatic arc of the of the story so like that that to me is like the deadwood quality of this book (laughs) where it's like let me take you into a historical era but i'm gonna let the characters curse in a way that you understand and like laugh at some of the same stuff you would laugh at even if the theatrical trappings are a little bit different um there is a section and this gets to the informality of the narrator when he first introduces little Sophie um, and he says, this is the narrator, all this time you've spent with William and you'd no idea more than any, uh, like you were, you were following around through all these intimate situations and he's a dad, you had no idea. And like literally just like conversating with us about this like arrival of a character um, which feels very modern and, and not a thing that would happen in the 19th century. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the last bit is from Agnes's perspective, and this gets to it being a book about literature, which I think is like when we read some of the older stories for the show, we remark on their, um, you know, epistolary novels or 
novels where someone's like, this is definitely a story that I was told by someone that I'm relaying to you, the reader. Right, that, like, yeah. give them a sense of verisimilitude for the era. Where, well, and even if you're talking about, like, like uh, like a reader, I married him sort yes, of, sort yes. of interjection. Uh-huh. Even though I think most of the book is not necessarily surfacing that, but... Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, That's Jane Eyre, right? That's the reader I married him book. Sure, I'm pretty sure it is. Do you want? I'm 100 sure. <laughs> okay. Um, and Agnes is like reading novels, and of course, this is the era of Dickens and the Brontes and Tolstoy and Beecher Stowe and like actual novels that are coming into fashion and in popular fiction. Um, Agnes says, uh, "This is like a close second person, I guess, um, or close third. The difference between men and women is nowhere plainer," thinks Agnes, "than in the novels they write." The men always pretend they are making everything up, that all the persons in the story are mere puppets of their imagination, when Agnes knows that the novelist has invented nothing. He has merely patchworked many truths together, collecting accounts from newspapers, consulting real soldiers or fruit sellers or convicts or dying little girls, whatever his story may require. The lady novelists are far more honest. Dear reader, they say, this is what happened to me. Um, and I think we've talked about that in on the air but i've certainly read a lot of articles about it recently that like double standard of yeah for sure like like any any book written by a woman must be about her lived personal experience and so when we are critiquing it we value that part of things or we'd focus on that part of things more than than we do when when a man writes it yes and i think like i definitely we've done it like i think we try not to but for sure if anything, we have done that. Yeah. If, if anything, for me, I just try to focus more on what the men lived experiences even more because I think that's just as fair, you know, like mm-hmm. to pretend that dudes are writing books in vacuums is not like I don't I wish I knew more about why Faber was like, I'm going to just write my own Victorian novel. Yeah. Fart, fart, he, fart, yeah. PPP. <laughs> like, why? <laughs> like. Well, I guess I guess you get to do that, what man. Kind of, what kind of peed stuff was um, Michael Faber into? Let's, let's talk know. about that. <laughs> I don't know. Because if we're talking about, you know, if we're talking about how every book is a bunch of truths cobbled together, That's, like, okay, hey, Michael Faber, you're gay. What? <laughs> this is before YouTube, so I gotta assume that this happened to you in real life. Hey, man. That's what books are for. Expand your <laughs> worldview. Transport you to different fictional circumstances. Um, so yeah, it's it's a book about literature and about the limits thereof and what stories we get to tell. Like most of the characters in the book are writing things or reading things a lot. Um, and then it's also like we've talked a bit about the like morality and and fallenness or not. And that's a big part of like the subplot with Henry and Mrs. Fox. Sure. Um, and then like the, I made a little section of my notes that just say catnip for Craig, um, <laughs> <laughs> where like whenever the book was feeling a little long or like kind of draggy, the things that were getting me going, like, whoa, that were keeping me reading, um, were the, like the Deadwood quality of the juxtaposition of, of tone and era, um, the anxieties over a changing age like that to me is a thing that I can always get sucked into because it plays to my own 
concerns. Anxiety about a changing age. Yeah. Yes. There, like, there's a part where Mrs. Fox is talking about how she misses an appointment with one of the prostitutes she's trying to save because she was so excited to ride the tube. Like, she was on the subway for the first time and was like, this is glorious. And then she just was late and decided not to go to her meeting. Mm-hmm. So she, like, missed out. And she, like, there's some line where she says something about, like, I think our desire for progress is going to, uh, like, detract us from actually fulfilling our, our mission here on Earth or something sure. like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, I've dug a lot about the the exploration of women's roles in this society. And then, like, as just a a complicated, long narrative, I enjoyed random-ish events that just, like, change people's circumstances and in a shorter plot would feel, like, shoehorned in, but, like, what makes it part of the narrative is the character's consistent reactions to things. So, like, William is the best example where, like, his brother dies and then he makes snap decisions based on that specific tragedy. Or later in the book, he kind of gets into trouble with his Beetle Boys or whoever they are. Um, and like, definitely. Get, <laughs> That's right. He gets too drunk and then gets like robbed and beat up. And he like suffers some injuries that then like change his mood and tone and prevent him from doing things that he was trying to do. Um, and I, I am always impressed when stories can pull off like, here's a random thing that happened to a character. Like the circumstances of it are random. Um, but the follow, like the, the resulting events feel true to like the rest of the book. Okay. Um, and I think it, it doesn't, it can't do that if Faber isn't as steeped in like literature that has already done that successfully, I guess. Okay. Sure. Um, so yeah, I mean, if you're up for like some, some dirty Dickens, like get on in there and read the crimson petal and the white. Like I can think of no stronger endorsement. <laughs> I I do think like I I will one last time third times a charm I will call out Deadwood as a good hallmark because I think it is a it is a book written by a man so I would not be surprised if uh, women identifying readers like find some stuff about the characters like mm, I don't know about that but it feels like the women in this book have the same like depth as characters from like Deadwood, which is written mostly by David Milch and like just has, he has a sense of the obstacles they're facing and doesn't like, I don't know. I I don't feel like he is falling prey to too much objectification that is not actually being done by characters. Sure. Yeah. Got it. Um, So yeah, that's the, that's the book. It's a big one. Um, I don't know. Is there a style of book, Andrew, that you would like updated for the modern age? I would like updated for the modern age. Like if mm. you could get a good saucy narrator from 2019 to like take a classic genre and bring you in with their irreverent tone and cursing. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Like I, I think some about the... I, I, most of what I'm thinking about is like sci-fi and fantasy and adventure stuff, which of course a million billion people have done that. So it's not like a, it's not, it's not a need same. that I have. So. But maybe you have. Have you found the one that you like yet? Have you found that? Like, do you want like a, uh, like a like a Buck? What is it, Buck Rogers? 
that's a thing. Sure, right? that's a guy. Mm-hmm. Like a kind of like a space fair and adventure man, but like with some modern twists. Just give me War of the Worlds, but the part where people think it's real. Oh yeah. Like the story about that, but the modern era. Okay. That sounds good. Yeah. Cool. All right. Um, Not the actual World of War of the Worlds story, which I think has been redone several times. Several times. Um, if folks have thoughts on what they would like to have updated for the 21st century, they can send them into overduepod at gmail.com or hit us up on social media at twitter.com and facebook.com slash overduepod. Thanks to Jaybird, Krista, Cheryl, Rachel, Ann, Deming, Paul, Aaron, Mary, Kelly, Hannah, Dion, Jeff, Gabby, and many more for reaching out to us over the last week. If you listened to our forthcoming Q&A episode, you will likely hear a bunch of other names from folks who are asking us questions. Um, that should hit the main feed on Friday. Andrew, if folks want to know more about the show, where should they go? OverduePodcast.com is our website. Up there we have links to all the ways you can subscribe to the show. Well, some of them, anyway, including <laughs> Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and our RSS feed. We're also available in Stitcher and on Spotify. If you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, rate and review us. Makes us feel good. Makes other people find the show. It makes them do it. It, it makes, makes them, them download the makes show. It makes them, puts it on it's their like phones. When, if we get enough reviews, it'll be like when Apple made everybody download that U2 <laughs> album. Um, we've also got links to a new listener page with episodes we are particularly happy with and our Patreon page at patreon.com slash overdue pod. Uh, that's the that's the podcast. Uh, next week, do you remember what I'm reading? You were reading figured it out right before the show. Speak by Lori Hulse Anderson. And then I'm following that up with Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell by Susanna Clark. Yeah. So um, July's schedule is going to be a little tricky. Um, because the due date is the 21st. Yeah. Um, so we've got, you know, we're, we're going to keep releasing stuff every week. We've got a good, uh, queue of things recorded already. And a few things we're going to record. There's going to be a choose your own adventure in there. There's going to be the other, um, his dark materials books. There's going to be a guest episode with the, with the ladies at the worst bestsellers podcast. We've got all sorts of stuff cooking. Got all sorts of stuff cooking. But, uh, yeah, basically, we can't do a schedule for this month because things could blow up at any time. <laughs> but we will attempt to give you a schedule of that as soon as we know what that is. <laughs> yeah, just know that it's going to be, even by the standard of the last couple of months where it's been a little more, uh, I don't know, flying by the seat of our pants, it's going to be not set in stone. So, yeah. yeah. Buckle up. We'll have a podcast. It's just we might not be able to tell you much about it ahead of time. <laughs> All right. Thank you for listening, everyone. And until we talk to you next time, try to be happy. That was a HeadGum Podcast. You want to take a take a break Sounds and then come back? All right. What if we didn't come back one time? <laughs> that just really <laughs> struck me as really funny as the idea. We would just what release. If we, what if we did the ad? We did the ad and then they we played the outro music and then it was just like 45 minutes of silence. <laughs>